the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Hate is an emotion without an expiration date. The German Nazi magazine, The Stormer, has inspired the contemporary neo-Nazi US blog, The Daily Stormer. The anti-Semitism that fueled the Holocaust is now fueling increasing personal assaults, vandalism, and intimidation against Jewish people. The danger of the politics of hate and how to meet that danger, the final episode of Addicted to Hate. So I'd like to thank Three wonderful guests that have agreed to join us and give us the benefit of their experience and their wisdom, uh, their knowledge. Uh, first, Professor Christopher Browning, who is an historian specializing in Holocaust-related issues. He taught at Pacific Lutheran University and also at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Mary Cypers is from the Anti-Defamation League in Seattle. And George Elbaum is a Holocaust survivor originally from Poland who now resides and is joining us from San Francisco. Thank you, each of you, for joining us today. So let's pick up our conversation where we left off last week, and that is that some don't even attempt to deny the Holocaust. They actually embrace it. Uh, in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, we saw T-shirts worn and uh, promoted by one group known as the Proud Boys, uh, a hate group, actually bore the symbol 6MWE. What does that stand for? And what is the significance of that? S, you know, 6MWE, where 6 million weren't enough. These are people that, in fact, are not denying the Holocaust. They're embracing it, identifying with it, and are vowing to finish it off because 6 million is not nearly enough in this race war that they are taking part of. Uh, and also, the person, of course, wore the, 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 the sweatshirt Camp Auschwitz. Uh, before they always denied Auschwitz had gas chambers. Now, when you wear a sweatshirt that says Camp Auschwitz, uh, you're in a sense embracing, I think, the image of that and endorsing it. So I think uh, both what happened in Charlottesville, where for the first time, people with Confederate flags marched side by side with people with Nazi flags. And they chanted both, you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us. Uh, and they mix now American white supremacy and Nazi stuff together proudly. Uh, this is new. I mean, I think we've reached a new stage here uh, where it's beyond Holocaust denial and saying, no, we're not Nazis. We're just uh, trying to defend Southern heritage or whatever. Uh, this is now, yes, uh, we are Nazis. They were right. And we want to want to continue. So I think this is a this is a point where white supremacy has become so emboldened that they don't deny it anymore. Uh, and uh, the the openness of it now, the emboldenedness of it now, I think is, is really a frightening new turn. It's really interesting, I think, in this particular case, you know, as an organization that tracks and analyzes white supremacy, speaking to our earlier comments about Charlottesville and, and what was unfolding several years ago, we saw groups um, 
that really were trying, that were very much out there um, in terms of their anti-Semitic chants and their anti-Semitic ideologies and their racism and xenophobia. But we also saw this evolution of this kind of cultural phenomenon known as the alt-right, where there are a lot of groups out there that recognize that overt racism wasn't something that was popular among you know, the vast majority of Americans. So we saw a lot of people trying to sugarcoat a lot of their um, you know, white supremacist ideology and talking about you know, whiteness and European sort of identity and all of these different issues. And I think the Proud Boys for a long time were a group that were a little bit confusing to the general public as well, because in some ways they weren't as easy to classify as you know, a neo-Nazi or white supremacist group. But I think what we saw at the insurrection of the Capitol um, was just as, as uh, Professor Browning was saying, just a, a complete kind of acceleration, if you will, um, you know, of this white supremacist kind of emboldenment that we've seen that really has been unlike anything we've even seen over the past couple of years, which has been such a moment for this movement. Um, so I think it's really interesting to think of the different groups on the spectrum, but just over the past couple of years, how we kind of started at a really difficult point you know, around 2016, but the situation has only deepened and worsened so much. Mm -hmm. George, having lived through the Holocaust, uh, what was your reaction when you started seeing those scenes and the promotion of this kind of ideology in the Capitol insurrection? Well, actually, uh, I started seeing the neo-Nazism neo and, and militant neo-Nazism during my 25 years of commuting between California and Moscow. It was for like 1974 through the late 1990s. And the reason that was just so amazing, amazing to me, just unbelievable to me, is that um, the Nazis, you know, World War II cost the Soviet Union about 20 million dead. So there probably isn't, there are very few families in Russia that didn't lose um, uh, parents or grandparents or mm -hmm. grandparents during World War II. And yet, the neo Nazis were the young people in their teens. Uh, they certainly were all born after the war. And I was wondering how, how is it that their parents or their grandparents are viewing these punks who are, you know, wearing mm -hmm. swastikas and giving the Nazi salute? when somebody in their family had been killed by the Nazis before. I cannot understand that, and I never will. Is this a matter of invalid beliefs uh, that could be countered, or are they fundamental enough uh, to be essentially uh, impermeable to fact? I might ask you, Murray, uh, Mary, to address that first because of your work with ADL, uh, and then uh, Professor Browning and George. I think we would say, well, certainly, you know, many, many of these beliefs are incredibly ingrained and strong. I, I don't think we believe as an organization that thinks about rehabilitation and restoration that that is out of the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. We work with a number of organizations who have individuals who are former white supremacists who have been exposed to other cultures and communities, religious groups, et cetera, and have over time sort of overcome and move past these beliefs as they've gained more exposure to others. And I do think that is something that is certainly possible. 
we're very committed at ADL to the notion that people are not born with hatred and they're not born with bias, but these are um, ideas that are um, acquired over time in society and ones that need to really be addressed very vigorously, especially from a young age. But we do certainly know that, you know, there are many people that are hardened that, you know, I don't think will um, hopefully have an opportunity to change their ways. But I do think the kind of investment in really um, strong and comprehensive education at an early age that uh, teaches about the value of inclusion and accepting of other people despite difference is something that we support. And we not only support it, that is really essentially what we do um, in K through 12 schools with a lot of our education programs, like No Place for Hate in a World of Difference that directly reach young people as young as kindergarten with very age appropriate ways to start thinking about not only how they can appreciate their own identity and the identity of others, but how they can serve as allies and be upstanders when they see things that happen in society that are not okay. So I think it's really incumbent on us to not only think about how to kind of help or rehabilitate those who are already part of these kinds of movements, which is really hard, but on the prevention side, what are ways that we can work with young people and educators and families and even law enforcement to be able to kind of to correct these kinds of situations before they, they um, you know, become more dire. Uh, Professor Browning and uh, George, I might ask uh, each of you for your reaction. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly I'd say in the earlier manifestations of Holocaust denial, certainly from the late 70s up until the Irving trial, it tried to go under the guise of academic respectability. This is an academic debate and we simply want to debate the other side. Uh, and so they were still claiming, uh, in a sense, uh, that, uh, that they were within the realm of historical truth. What's so disturbing about more recent uh, events is that there's an open war on truth, on the very concept mm -hmm. of truth, and that to, have a, to be able to deliver a fire hose of lies is something that's now admired. Uh, a, the politician is not embarrassed by being caught out lying and they don't have to apologize. This is a mark of honor that they can tell so many lies that nobody else can keep up with them. You can't process them. You can't discredit them. It's just an endless deluge. So the very notion of truth disappears when you so polluted the information pool, so overwhelmed sources of information with falsehoods that you in a sense have made truth relative or undiscernible out of this whole mass of lies that is out there uh, so that we are operating in a kind of different battlefield now uh, in which uh, it's not can we disprove them and embarrass them by catching them at the lie because they're not embarrassed uh, it's a credit uh, they can tell a more preposterous lie uh, the more they are sticking it to the liberals who actually want to believe in such things as truth and facts and that's a mark of honor George, what's your reaction to that perception? I take it very, very personally. I suppose I'm one of those um, liberals that that still believes in truth. I was raised that way. Um, my main critique—I'll uh, be straight out about it—during the last presidential election, the previous one, the 2016, the worst thing I could say about Trump was that he was everything that I was taught not to be. And specifically as far as truth, uh, 
the Holocaust deniers that I've met, whether it's the nurse at MIT or whether it's my hang gliding buddy, I realize that for them, it is so deep that it's like like a religion or like politics. You can't take the, you can't talk them out of it. You can't mm-hmm. prove them out of it. And for example, with the hang gliding man, what I forgot to say is that when he said that uh, the Nazis abhorred violence, he knew that I've seen and, su- and suffered. So if you say, well, if it was done, then it was probably the Poles that did it because the Nazis couldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. And to stretch that far, you know, to, to someone who was there, who saw it, you know, who, you know, who saw uh, the uniforms that were being worn, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. To, to just say it wasn't the Nazis that did it, they couldn't have done it. So for him, it was a religion. Uh, I think a study uh, showing the majority of uh, millennials and Gen Zers didn't know that six million Jews died in the Holocaust. Uh, And I think there were half of them, uh, of those that did know, couldn't name a single concentration camp. And 20% were quoted as saying that they believe the Jews actually uh, caused the Holocaust. To what extent does this show a real shortcoming of what is taught in schools and in some cases attempts to utterly erase history? Uh, so I would ask, how do we move forward, at least in this aspect of education? I think that along the lines of the importance of education for young people, one really important piece of the conversation in the importance of honoring history and having an accurate recount of history and not allowing misinformation and disinformation to really mm-hmm. take hold is The fact that when we look at the landscape of how the history of the Holocaust is taught across the United States, as of 2019, we only saw 11 states that actually mandated Holocaust education in middle and high schools. And I do think that is a really important element as George is talking about how people have misshapen history, you know, for their own perceptions and needs and wants. If we're not really investing in requiring this kind of uh, education for young people at a young age that's taught in, you know, an accurate, responsible, you know, way. I think that's a really big misstep and it's um, an issue that all of us need to really work on and address. And part of it is it, it's an issue of passing laws um, that, you know, mandate or provide for some sort of foundation for this education in various states. Um, and it's also, of course, an issue of implementing it to ensure that this kind of information is distributed and, and taught to young people in a sensitive and thoughtful and historically accurate way. I'll bring up one point. Uh, two years ago, in April of 2019, mm-hmm. I spoke at the ADL Youth Congress in Boston at 1,500 uh, attendants. And I noticed the questions I got Afterwards, I'll meet with various groups and ask me questions. And I noticed that they were, the questions were much more cogent, much more aware of what happened than the average questions that I get for American high schools. So those that are part of ADL, they have absorbed a lot of information that hasn't yet filtered down to mm-hmm. American high school. Well, education is always a kind of Sisyphean task, uh, and we're always rolling the rock up the hill. Uh, and I think in, in Holocaust education, like other aspects, uh, this, is, this is there. We, you 
democracy always has to be defended. The truth always has to be taught. Uh, it's a never ending task. And uh, however uh, unfortunate certain developments have, have been in the last you know, recent years, uh, it still remains the, the one best hope and the one main answer I think we have. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, it may be that we can't reach uh, the, the true believers, uh, but we do have to reach those that can be reached. Uh, and uh, uh, do try to make sure the truth is honored. But I would also say it's important to kind of think of it from a systemic viewpoint. Um, we have a lot of programs that not only look at young people and how we can teach Holocaust education in a really age appropriate manner, but also what were the different systems that failed that sort of led to the Holocaust that allowed this kind of, um, this kind of history to unfold. And I think one of the powerful forces that maybe we don't always think about a lot is our work with law enforcement. And we have a really powerful program that's a partnership with local Holocaust museums and the ADL, where we have very skilled facilitators who lead historical explorations and modern day conversations with law enforcement to talk about the slow breakdown in democracy that was um, fueled by coercion and by law enforcement during the Holocaust and during World War II as it happened. And I'll also say to the point of information, misinformation, disinformation, I think one topic that we haven't talked about, and maybe you are getting to this, Jeff, is the, the presence of the online world and what that really means for information and inaccuracy and mistruths in, in today's environment and how um, these kinds of technologies can be really powerful forces for good, but it also has generated some extremely negative trends when it comes to the targeting of people who are marginalized because of their identities, like Jewish people and others, the prevalence of misinformation and disinformation, you know, that can really travel um, across the globe. So I think it has so many implications for a lot of the trends that we're seeing today. Uh, Professor Browning, as we look at the problems of uh, adherence to alt-fact, uh, the siloing effect, uh, the problem of social media, what are your suggestions going forward? Um, well, ones I think uh, we should recognize how globalized this, is, this has become, uh, to understand the scale of this. Uh, the model that things, in a sense, have, have grown upon is, of course, the old model of Nazi anti-Semitism, that it's an existential battle between Germans and Jews. And this is a race struggle, and only one side can win. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's happened now, in a sense, is it's been turned into a global struggle between white civilization and everyone else. So that if you look at the manifestos, the guy who shot African-Americans in the basement of a church in Charleston, and the guy that shot Jews in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, and the person who shot Hispanics at the Walmart in El Paso, and the man who shot Muslims in the mosque in New Zealand, and the Norwegian that shot white teenagers at a socialist youth camp, they're all saying the same thing. I mean, this is a, they are, but it's, it's a vast global expansion of what used to be the archetypal anti-Semitic model of, of a Nazi race war, but now it's become a global one. Uh, and so that um, some of the motifs now, in a sense, have been blown up. But I do think we have to understand this, in a sense, is, is Nazism writ worldwide now, globally. Mm -hmm.
uh, and that uh, that uh, there, as Miriam has said, there's all sorts of, of people who are now uh, targeted, uh, and uh, that these people are equal opportunity persecutors, uh, bigots, that they will go after all sorts of different groups. Uh, but the model that, in the sense, they are building on is the is the old uh, racist anti-Semitism archetype of of, of of Germany and National Socialism. So you've all offered some responses to that. Any other nuances that you would suggest in terms of confronting what we're encountering right now? Right after the Pittsburgh massacre, uh, I was asked to speak at the Haas Business School at UC Berkeley. They had a leadership course and they asked for Holocaust survivor to come in and speak to them. And I did. And afterwards, the one question that they asked turned five different ways, but it's basically the same question is what can we as individuals do to counter anti-Semitism, racism, uh, prejudice of any sort? And my answer to them was twofold. Number one, as individuals speak up. Uh, I feel that hatred and anger still throughout most of civilization, I think, is negative. Yes, there are groups that abide by it, but uh, in most situations, uh, in the light of day, the light of exposure, someone who is racist, uh, anti-Semitic, would back off if he's faced with it. So, so in cases like that, say to that person, if you hear something, speak up. I want to hear that again. I want my friends to hear it also. And they usually back up. I tell, I tell them, it takes courage to do that. To do that. that is where we as individuals can do something. The other thing is we as individuals, when we are old enough to vote, to support the candidates, whether they are civil, civil, civic leaders or whether they are political leaders, who also uh, support and openly support the uh, truth and fairness and tolerance, as opposed to our ex-president who in Charlottesville said, well, there are very fine people on both sides. And I say, no, there are no fine people, very fine people on the side of hatred and prejudice and anger and violence. So this is what I feel we as individuals can and should do. Professor Browning or Mary? I would say I'm often asked, you know, in a sense, what can we do now? And and certainly some of the work I've done is on the Nazi perpetrators. And I wrote a book called Ordinary Men, uh, which basically argued that many of the people mobilized to do the actual killing uh, are, are not extraordinary. We're not fanatical. Uh, but if you have a tyrannical racist government in power, they're never going to fail to commit genocide because they can't find people or mobilize people to pull the trigger. So the first line of defense is to preserve democracy, uh, that you've got to keep governments uh, that are committed to human rights, that are committed uh, to democratic political culture. Uh, you lose that and uh, a tyrannical racist government uh, once in power uh, is not uh, going to have trouble finding people to do all sorts of terrible things on their behalf. Mary? I would agree with that. I think thinking about how we as individuals, as organizations, as communities can uphold and preserve our, democ our democratic values and our democracy is incredibly important. 
I think from an educational perspective, investing resources and time and attention and starting very young is, is crucial in creating um, future generations that care about human dignity and empathy and compassion for all people. And I think also thinking a bit about it from a systemic point of view is important. How can we um, hold legislators and elected officials accountable for their language and encourage them to create policies that are inclusive? How can we teach law enforcement about the value of human dignity? And I think also as communities, we need to think in an era where civil discourse has really eroded and we've had so many disconnects um, from other groups just because of the current pandemic, but also that kind of continued trend of um, you know, thinking about us as different um, and not as similar. I do think investing in community conversations and community building is really important because ultimately the Jewish people are very small and, and often very vulnerable, but thinking ourselves, thinking about ourselves and our communities as intimately tied to others where our fates are, you know, all um, very much connected, which is really the ethos of the ADL. It's standing up for the rights of all people and, and fighting against the hate that is connected to us all. It's not just about one community and the discrimination that we face, but ensuring that all people have opportunities, I think is really crucial. So I think that there are a number of ways that we in society need to be working in a really holistic way to be able to tackle hate and a lot of the current manifestations we're seeing. Well, I would think each of you, it obviously gives all of us a sense of uh, need in terms of how do we respond to this individually in everyday life, as well as the larger overarching uh, strategies that we might use. Uh, this is going to be a conversation, uh, the need for which unfortunately is probably not going to go away. And I hope at some point in the future, we could uh, persuade each of you to join us again for this conversation. Uh, I would thank all of you watching out there or listening and hope that you will tune in again to Challenge 2.0. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. You can also tell one friend about the show. That would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.